Since the end of April, we've been reading through the book of Acts. We've seen that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Then he poured out his spirit on his followers. And then the kingdom began to move forward. It began to move out. It began to spread. And for the last several weeks, we've watched as the kingdom moves forward, it's not smooth sailing. It's forward progress, no doubt. Remarkable. But it's not a panacea of happiness. It's not smooth sailing. There have been significant challenges and sufferings. The threat of physical persecution in chapter 4. The, the leaders of the church were told to stop talking about the resurrection of the dead and about Jesus Christ. And if they didn't, they would be physically tortured. In chapter 5, they faced the threat of moral compromise. Ananias and Sapphira attempting to bring greed and ego and lying and theft into the life of the church. And then later in chapter 5, the leaders of the church are indeed arrested and physically tortured. And behind these threats, chapter 5 says multiple times, what's going on here is the devil. That it is that great enemy of God's work, that enemy of old, it is Satan. It's Satan who tries to intimidate us and tries to silence the church, whether it's through persecution and violence or through hypocrisy and compromise. But the church in the book of Acts, by the grace of God and by their devotion to Scripture and by their prayer life, the church rises up with courage in the face of all of these threats and they successfully navigate the challenges. They successfully overcome the difficulties. And now in chapter 6, we see that the church is facing a third threat. A threat it hasn't faced before. And this time, it's not the threat of persecution. And it's not the threat of hypocrisy. But it's equally devilish. It's the threat of distraction. This is the powerful attack of the enemy on the church. This morning, we're going to look at this, this attack, this threat. And we're going to listen for God's direction to our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. Your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week, we saw that the church is living like a family. Look in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, at Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 34. 
We saw this last week. This remarkable statement. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What we saw last week is that we shouldn't read this as some primitive form of communism. Instead, we need to think about this from the perspective of family. Just like you don't think of your family, the way it functions from the lens of political theory, don't think about what's going on here from the lens of some social way of constructing a group according to communism or socialism. The people in the church here, they are looking at each other as if they were members of the same family. So like a good, normal, healthy family today, they, they considered the needs of somebody else in the family as their own needs. That's what families do. This is how the Ditos function. If Eva needs a pair of shoes, Ernie doesn't think, well, I make money. You need to make money. Right? If, if, <laughs> if um, one of the Hewavitas had a medical need. Indy, who's the primary source of income in the family, the sole source of income, he wouldn't say, well, Kim, I don't know how you're going to pay for that baby, but you better find a job. In fact, if he ever said that, she would punch him in the throat in Christian love. No, Indy probably didn't even have to ever go through any thought about mine and yours. Why? Because they're a family. That's the way families function. Janelle and I spent yesterday afternoon in a glorious fit of working on the budget. We found, after doing all of our Dave Ramsey judo, that we have $95 unallocated for the month. So a little trick we learned from Josh Lowe. Is Josh here? No, Josh. A little, uh, Josh and uh, Laura, when they did uh, premarital counseling with Janelle and I for getting ready for their marriage He told us about this thing that his family would do. We totally ripped it off. Um, We went home last night after this glorious afternoon. And um, we said to our children, we have $95. What do y'all want to do with it? And we ended up at Kyoto. Watching them cook shrimp and the little choo-choo train with the um, onions and the, you know, the fire. And um, we blew it all. And then some. When we see that the early church was sharing their resources, don't think about communism. Think about the way your family functions. This is the church acting like family. So, Acts chapter 4, these Christians are looking at each other's needs as their own needs. But what do you do when that's the way you're acting and suddenly the family gets very big and you don't know everybody? That gets tricky, doesn't it? How does a family work when it's twice the size you expect it? So the church in Acts, it grows explosively. Suddenly they go from 120 on the first page of Acts. 
Now in chapter 6, we don't know for sure, but there's at least 5,000 men. And then just do the math, women, children. This is a very big family, right? This is like an ant family or something. So it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Notice the primary context of the tension is the explosive growth. This growth, it put pressure on the family way of functioning. So, what do you do in this situation? What do you do when, when the pressure of the growth of a church comes to a head along a fault line that's been there for centuries? Along the fault line of prejudice. Along the fault line of Jews that are divided before they convert into two basic groups. Jews that are deeply influenced by Hellenism. Hellenism is so powerful, it's so comprehensive, it's so pervasive that you'll spend a lot of your college career learning about the impacts of Hellenism on architecture and language and political theory and social groupings and everything else. So what happens when a group of Jews who are deeply shaped by the Greek culture, so much so that that's their fundamental identity? They're not just Jews, they're Greek Jews. What do you do when these Greek Jews, and then you've got this other group of Jews, the Hellenist Jews, the Hebrew Jews, the group of Jews who have not been influenced by Greek culture, but they think in Hebrew ways. They talk in the Hebrew language, not in the Greek language. They, they, they imagine the world according to the Hebrew perspective. They imagine responsibilities according to the culture of the Hebrews, not the culture of the Jews. When these people get saved and they come into the life of the church, it doesn't erase centuries of tension. And so as the church grows, the pressure of the growth manifests itself on that fault line. And then you see the church. It's living as a family. Families take care of each other. There was no complex, intricate welfare system. Just like in your family, there's no complex, intricate system. You help each other out. But suddenly, the growth goes beyond the informal system that was in place because the informal system that was in place was vulnerable to the prejudices. Remember this church is meeting together as a group in the temple precinct, but then they're dividing up and meeting in homes to eat together and pray together and read the Bible together. And if you're going to pick which home to go to, you're going to go to the home that talks in your language and that knows how to relate according to the ways you're used to relating. So how many homes are they meeting in? I mean, there's what, 10, 15,000 of them? They're meeting in hundreds of homes. And you know that there's lots of homes in the Greek precinct, and there's lots of homes in the Hebrew precinct, and you know that you're meeting with people who you can actually understand when they talk. And suddenly, people are left out. 
So the context, it's the exponential growth of a culturally complex group of people trying to live as a single family. And then we get verse 2. We see that beneath this problem is a threat. The threat of distraction. Just to be clear, the problem the church was facing was a breakdown in its grocery delivery system. And this was manifested along the fault line of cultural tension. Learning to live as one family meant they had to deal with the generations-long tension between conflicting cultures, the Greeks and the Hebrews. And this prejudice was out of step with the gospel. The gospel changes that. The gospel challenges prejudice. The church assumed that. The church knew right away what we've got here is a prejudice that the gospel deconstructs. But the way they solved the deep-seated prejudice that was manifesting itself in administrative failings and organizational neglect, the way they solved this problem is twofold. First, a very clear discernment of the job of an apostle. And second, the very clear discernment of the type of leader needed to deal with the prejudice and the failings of the system. So first, the disciples say these two things. Look at verse 2. They say, first thing they say, this is not our job. Look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the God to serve tables. Now we're going to come back to this. But for now, just notice the disciples had a crystal clear understanding that the problem was not theirs to dive into in the, in the actual outworking of its solution. Second, look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men with three characteristics. A good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. So the apostles said, whoa, this is a huge problem. This is a gospel problem. This is a kingdom problem. It's got to be solved. We can't be the ones to actually work out the solution of it. But we need people to do this who are, they've got the kind of integrity that produces a reputation. They are trusted. Don't you think this problem is going to require trust? I mean, can you imagine showing up in Matt and Laura's life and they're Greeks and we know they're lower than us because we're, we're Hebrews and other reasons. He's from New Jersey. But so... Can you imagine how deep the pain is running between the lights and the trainums? Because we're talking about a corner of the world that still hurts or carried for generations. Right? Can you imagine the kind of trust the person walking into that problem needs to have? And the kind of relationship with God that they're full of His Spirit. And not just that, but they better be wise. Because this is tricky. This is nuanced. This is complicated. 
And then look what it says. Then the apostles say in verse 4. I'm on the wrong page. Chapter 6, verse 4. We will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right. So we need to find some people that, are, that are, have these characteristics about them to deal with this. And we're going to deal with this other thing. The word and prayer. Now notice verse 5. And what they said pleased the church. The church was not only pleased with, yeah, that's the kind of people that need to do it. They were also pleased with this way of dividing out the labor. And so they did it. They divided out the kingdom work. All of this is kingdom work. Word and prayer, that's kingdom work. Social work, that's kingdom work. When you look at Jesus in the gospel, he's dealing with social ills and he's dealing with teaching the word and he's dealing with praying. It's all kingdom work. You can't separate some of this belongs to the gospel and some of this doesn't. That's not what this is about. This is all gospel work. This is all kingdom work. They separate out who's going to give their attention to what. Notice something. Notice in verse 2. You see that phrase, serving tables? Now look down in verse 4. Ministry of the word. Those two words in the original language is originally written in Greek. The word serving for the tables and the word in Greek used for ministry of the word, it's the same word in Greek. It's the same word. You could translate it, we shouldn't neglect the ministry of the word for the ministry of tables. Or you could also translate it, we shouldn't neglect the service of the word for the service of tables. In other words, there's not a hierarchy here. One is not gospel work, spiritual work, and the other secular work. They're both full-time vocations. All of us. We're all full-time missionaries. It's not that I have a spiritual job and Kyle in business has a secular job. Whatever job you have, so long as it's a legitimate job, it is a calling by God to lift the world into the passion. All work done well is Christian work. The only non-Christian work is illegitimate work or legitimate work done with mediocrity. That's the only thing that separates Christian work from non-Christian work. These are both ministries. India is as much a full-time minister of God and his kingdom as I am. God's work through Indy is he makes prosthetics. Sort of like our Lord did. And God's work through me is the ministry of word and prayer. We're both in holy callings. We're both in holy orders. Zeke, he's following our Lord. He makes tables in a shop. Reading the gospel, you see Jesus teaching and healing. You see him doing that kind of work and the social kind of work. So the apostles said, look, now that the church is growing, now that there are so many thousands of people, it's implausible for us to try to do both. Because if we try to do both, we will neglect the word and prayer. And the word in prayer, it's not that it's better than the other work. It's the assignment the apostles were given. 
Remember when they were in jail last week? And the angel got them and said, get out of jail and go preach and teach. 30% of the book of Acts is their teaching. There's no sense here that the apostles regard this social work of God's kingdom as in any way inferior to their work. But they couldn't do both. And Jesus had given them a particular job, the word and prayer. So they are absolutely convinced that they do not have the liberty to be distracted from that calling. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but let's just keep going in the passage. So look what happens in verse 5. The whole group says that's exactly right. And in verse 6, seven men, or look at this, they are ordained for social work. I don't know why the church only lays hands on priests. We should be laying hands on school teachers and businessmen. And widows, and homemakers, and lawyers, and mental health care workers. We're all in holy, we're all ordained. We're all leaving this room and going back to hard jobs this week. Hard jobs that next week we're gonna get here by the skin of our teeth. Worn out, beat down, exhausted from the threat to God's kingdom. Try to do business well, and you'll face threats. Try to do homemaking well, and you'll face threats. Try to be the kind of grandparent that grandparenting is with the grain of God's kingdom, and you'll face threats. Now, as they did this, notice what happens in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So two things happened when they faced the problem, and they figured out the deeper threat, and their solution avoided the the threat of distraction, kept them on course with the kingdom. Two consequences. The first consequence is that the word of God spread. Obviously. Why? Because the apostles refused to be distracted from the service of the word. They held the line. They kept pushing the word forward. They kept praying and reading and teaching and explaining. So if they hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have this phrase. The word of God would have gotten halted. Because the word of God is a full-time job. It's hard work. But notice the second thing that happened. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And a whole bunch of priests. The people who in chapter 5 were threatening to kill them. They began to convert. So after the apostles made the hard but wise discernment. This is hard stuff. Knowing what is your job and what's a distraction, no matter what job you do, that is hard. After they made that hard but wise discernment to vocational faithfulness, and after the church supported that, 
And then they set aside leaders to take physical needs seriously because the word salvation in Luke's gospel and then in Luke's account of the church in Acts, the word salvation is about not only getting saved in your soul so that you're right with God, but it's also about getting saved from your sickness and getting saved from your poverty and getting saved from your relational brokenness. The word salvation covers both. So when we were singing, there is a redeemer, I was sitting there thinking about the brokennesses in my life that Jesus is my redeemer for. And when we were singing these amazing songs about God's salvation, all of us should have a very thick understanding of salvation, that it is about the healing of every dimension of our life. And so because the church realized that the kingdom covers everything, but that doesn't mean priests can do everything. And we've got to be smart about the way we take care of physical needs because the church realized that not only did the word spread, but there was an increasing number of people who said, I want to be in the kingdom. All right. Now let's talk about our church. On Saturday, October the 2nd, 2010, Janelle and I and our children, Spencer, she was seven, nine, I'm sorry, she was nine, and Sloan was seven, and Silas was five, and Shay was four, and Shelby was two, those. We moved here to Harrisonburg to join with a group of people who had been praying and laboring for a church like Incarnation to be started here, the Cooks. The Coots, the Ditos, Fran, the Goods, Melanie, and they're all here in our church. And then one other couple who's, who moved very quickly after we got started. They moved out of the area. Eleven adults and ten children. They had $15,000 in the bank, and they offered me a job. <laughs> and uh, we moved up here. And we joined with this group. We met them in the middle of July 2010. Janelle and I did. Then we brought our kids up in the middle of August. And then we moved here in October. And since then, God has done a remarkable thing. He built a church. And my family and I, we came from a church that I was pastoring in Birmingham. And we were only there for two years. But it was enough time to have both extreme joy and extreme suffering. And the 11 adults and 10 kids that we met with here, they had come out of an experience over the previous five years that was also marked by great joy and great suffering. And we were brought together by God's grace and God's call to start a church that exists for His glory and for the good of this city and and to do this by being small, being a small Anglican church deeply rooted downtown that plants other small Anglican churches deeply rooted in their neighborhoods throughout the valley. And all along the way, it's been, life has been like, there's this parable Jesus told. He said, a farmer goes out and he he throws, you know, whatever he's planting, the seeds of it. And and some of it, the crop is 30-fold, and some of the crop is 60-fold, and some of the crop is 100-fold. And that's what it's been like for the last five and three-quarters of a year. It's been like, Whatever we do, God blesses more than we do. The return on our labor 
has far outseated, exceeded what we've done. It's, it, it's like, I'm not a sailor, but I can imagine when the wind's just right and the water's just right and your job is just to hold the sail up. That's what it's been like in our church. This building is just part of this amazing building. It's just part of it. And that's played out over and over and over. And I'm convinced that a part of the reason, a part, not the only reason, not the most important reason, but an essential reason for the blessing of God is that our church from the beginning has had the guts and the discernment and the wisdom to let me be a pastor and let the people do work to share the load. From the beginning, the church believed that my vocation is a vocation of the word and prayer. And they believe that other folks in the church carry the responsibility of taking care of each other. And that we've got to raise up leaders because it requires wise, spirit-filled people of good reputation to do that. And the way we've done this as a church is we meet in small groups. And in these small groups, we have wise, spirit-filled men and women of good reputation who lead their small groups to take care of each other. And sometimes the physical needs overflow the small groups in our church. Last week, Mike Deaton told our church about Bishop Andudu and the great needs going on in Sudan. And Bishop Andudu is going back there, as many of you know. And I don't know if Mike said how much there was needed last week. Did you say? There's a need of about $15,000, both to cover what needs to happen in Sudan and um, to take care of his family that he's going to leave without income. And so Mike said, look, if any of you want to help, and over the last few weeks, our church has, checks have come in the mail and by person, $5,000. And our missions budget is going to kick in $2,000. And our rector's discretionary fund is going to kick in $1,000. And, and, and I think this, together with the other sources of of income that Bishop Bonduti's, he's within about $2,000 of, of covering this need. This is, this is, you know what this is? This is the Church of the Incarnation treating Andudu and his family as their family. Those of you who are giving money, this is you saying, there's a need and it's a part of my family, and so I'm going to take care of it. And this stuff has been going on since day one in our church. It goes on all the time, all over the place, because our church has been acting like a family. But did you notice it was Mike Deaton who organized this last week, not me. And this type of stuff, it goes on all over the place. Leaders stepping up and leading small groups to care for. From the beginning, our church did not centralize the care for physical needs in the church office. But it pushed it out to leaders. And this has been a mutual agreement between the church and me that, that my vocation is to the word and to prayer. And in this chapter of Acts, we see that the church is facing the very difficult struggle to identify how to do the hard work of the kingdom, which has many aspects to it. And the way they do this is they discern what the job of a priest is. And what the job of leaders in the church, what their jobs are. My calling. My calling is to the word and prayer. And the greatest temptation I face 
is distraction. It's distraction. Day in and day out. Because America is filled with pastors who are deserting their calling to the word and to prayer. It is a lot easier for me to lead committees than it is to do the work. You know, it's just like your job. The hardest part of your job is doing your job. And the easiest thing to do at your job is to die the death of a thousand distractions. The temptation for the apostles and for pastors from that day on has always been to to heave a sigh of relief at being spared the task of preaching and teaching, of explaining Scripture, of opening up its great narrative, its tiny details, of applying it this way and that, enabling people to live within its story and make its energy their own. There is a lot of kingdom work to do. And my job is not better than Mike's job. My job is my job. And his job is his job. And the job of a pastor, and the reason I'm saying this is because most Protestants don't know how to have a pastor. We know how to have a leader. We know how to have a leader of the organization. We know how to have a preacher. But to have a pastor... So here's the way it works for me. Um, I think in terms of two-thirds of my job is the word and prayer. And one-third of my job is administration. Why administration? Because that is part of it. I mean, just like here, when the problem came up, they, it says they summoned everybody and said, Here's, but if any of you have ever solved a problem before, it doesn't happen that fast, right? They had to think, okay, how are we going to do this? Then they had to get everybody together. Then they had to, that's administrative leadership. I'm not, I know that I'm not off the hook for organizational leadership. So in my mind, I think that's a third of my job. Here's how it works out for me. I spend Mondays as a Sabbath. One of my tasks is to lead you, the church, in the celebration of the Sabbath on Sunday. But Sundays are not a Sabbath for me. I wake up before 5 o'clock. I hit the ground with my adrenaline running um, I study all week. I write my sermon Sunday morning. So Mondays. Mondays are Sabbath days for me. And if I'm wise, I don't do work. I don't do appointments. I don't do administration. I don't have a schedule. I turn off my phone. I surrender it to Janelle. If there's an emergency, you can contact me on Mondays by calling Janelle. I try to spend the mornings in silence and solitude. This is tricky for me. In the afternoons, I try to putter about and do odd jobs. But I need your help. I need you to agree to this with me. I I need you to help me observe Mondays as a Sabbath. I need your prayers. I need your cooperation in not involving me in the work of the church on Mondays. I need you to admonish me if you see me carelessly letting things interfere. Tuesdays, I spend on organizational leadership, staff meetings, administration. Wednesday, Thursday, I spend the mornings in prayer and study. I spend the afternoons in pastoral appointments. I meet with people for lunch. See, because the work of a pastor, the word, there's a whole cluster of activities around it. It's not only studying it and preaching it. It's also teaching it and 
and things like essentials and going to people's houses and teaching it and sitting with you while you're struggling with things in your life and trying to show how the Word of God gives some direction. And there's a whole cluster of activities around the prayer work of a pastor. It's not just me needing to... Everybody needs to immerse everything they do in prayer. Right? That, that's clear in the Bible. But I should be praying more than you. This is the funny thing. I've never heard of a pastor get fired for praying too little. And they should. If that's at the core of my calling. So I lead you in prayer on Sundays. I teach you how to pray. I pray with you. I pray for you. I meet with you in the tough spots of your life. And I listen with you for God's voice. And I pray with you. You need to avail yourself of a priest. You need, you know, here's the way it works. Normally, if if there's a need in your life uh, that fits within my calling, within two weeks I can meet with you. I don't meet in the evenings with people. You need to take time off work to come and meet with me, just like you take time off work to go see your doctor. I mean, can you imagine me trying to raise five kids and meeting with people in the evenings? That's not fair, right? So uh, if it's an emergency, I can typically be there, but it needs to be an emergency. And if not, I'm going to be mad at you. I spend Fridays, all day Friday, in prayer and study. Email, it's at the bottom of my list. Because you know what? Prayer and the Word and meeting with people and praying with people, doing it via email is a sad way of doing it. And I just refuse to do that. So I treat email like smoke signals. Now, Ben can't do this at his job. He would be fired, right? But I'm doing this at my job because my job is about presence. So email for me is two-week turnaround. That's if, look, if it's an emergency, you either need to highlight that um, or you need to email Laura, the parish administrator, who can get to me quickly. If you want to talk, come see me. Set up an appointment. Our church offices are downtown. They're in the Bank of America building. But here's the deal. Jesus ascended, and when he, was ascend- when he ascended, he was enthroned as the king of the world. Then he poured out his spirit on the church And then the kingdom moved forward, and it was not smooth sailing. It was hard work. Can you imagine the hard work that had to occur after the death of Ananias and Sapphira? Can you imagine the confusion? CJ, if you were talking with somebody at InterVarsity, and they died, and then their girlfriend showed up, and they died, and and you were not a murderer, can you imagine the level of conversations? I mean, this was hard work behind the scenes going on. And in the midst of all this, they were having to face these threats, the threat of persecution, the threat of hypocrisy, and the threat of distraction. And this is what we face as a church. My biggest threat is distraction. Our biggest threat as a church is when people don't stand up and continue the kind of work Mike is doing. Sheldon is doing Hours and hours every week on the finances. Before him, Ed did that. Gil is in charge of the physical building that we have here. There are so many, so many of you are leading small groups. We've got to keep doing this. We have to keep sharing the work because the kingdom work is not only here. It's also in our needs. And needs are complicated and they require time. But as we do this, as we as a church... Do it this way. May the word of God continue to spread in this city. And may those who are far from God in his kingdom continue 
to come into the kingdom to the glory of God. Amen. Will you stand?